Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear weapon topics interact. As always, you can listen to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, and YouTube. We usually spend upwards of two hours overanalyzing a movie, TV show, something portraying nuclear weapons. But today, we continue our mini-nuke episode series. We record these episodes when a piece of pop culture just has a slice of nuclear topics in it. These circumstances don't warrant our hours and hours of coverage on our usual full-sized episode, but we still feel like overanalyzing them. So this is where we drop a mini-nuke episode. My name is Tim Westmeyer. Someone who studies nuclear weapons and nuclear strategy for a living. My usual podcast host, Joel, isn't here today, off doing adult stuff like buying a house and all those other kind of fun things. But luckily, I'm joined by my friend Gabe, who I'm sure you remember from our three Star Trek episodes. Gabe, thanks very much for coming tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. We'll also be joined later in the episode by my friend Chris Mirasola. I'll Skype him in for a quick section on some of the nonsense that's not nuclear, not science, but straight up law nonsense. But seriously, Gabe, thanks again for coming. We really don't seem to be able to have an episode of the podcast about space without having you on. So without you being here, we'd be totally lost when we started to watch the 2015 movie, The Martian. And as the poster yells at us for the tagline, bring him home. Yeah, it's a command. It's pretty much, yeah. It's like coming straight from NASA director. Uh, This movie was directed by Ridley Scott, who I'm sure needs no introduction from Alien and Blade Runner. It was written by Drew Goddard, who is one of my favorite writers in Hollywood. He writes for the Daredevil TV show. He was an executive producer, and I think he wrote a few episodes for Lost. He also wrote the the World War Z movie, Cloverfield, Alias, Buffy episodes. He's he's been around the block, so he collaborated with the uh, author of the book that this movie is based off of, Andy Weir who was essentially like a space hobbyist, I think he was partially like a computer programmer, uh, and had a blog where he talked about space things, and he had this serialized story on his blog for several years about an astronaut that got stuck on Mars, and he would create a problem, and then he would come up next week with the solution, kind of like a Flash Gordon serial. Oh, it's cool. I didn't know it started as a blog. I I thought it was just uh, he sat down and wrote the book. That's cool that it was iterative like that. Well, it was very collaborative because he worked a lot with NASA scientists, uh, people who were nuclear engineers. Anyone who was also a space geek like him would contribute to, oh, I think here's how Mark Mark Watney would be able to get out of this one. And then that kind of contributed to the, the cyclical nature of this thing where something goes wrong, something gets fixed. And they have very cool solutions and interesting things that come out uh, of what's trying to kill Mark Watney and how does he get out of it. Uh, it's, it's very exciting. And not only was the, the writing process collaborative uh, with a great cast of people, but the cast for this movie is one of the best casts I think I've ever seen uh, for a film. So I, I watched the movie first and then I recently read the book on the beach during my beach vacation because I'm a nerd and I read books like that on, on, a, on vacation. And it was perfectly cast. We have Matt Damon as our star, Mark Watney. He's our stranded astronaut. Of course, we also know him uh, stranded on a planet from Interstellar. Seems like he gets stuck somewhere. Yeah, this uh, is the the less uh, less evil version, though, uh, of uh, the, the Matt Damon stuck in space version. We also have Jessica Chastain as Melissa Lewis, who's the commander of the Ares 3 mission, is what the, the Mars mission here. I guess it roughly takes place in 2035, it seems like. when So not... In the immediate future, but a little bit in the future where we can uh, say, oh, technology has solved some of these problems which we'll list today. Kind of like how in, in Star Wars, if there's some weird thing that happens, we just say, oh, it was the Force. The Force solved this problem. Well, the time and technology advances have solved, maybe going to solve some of the issues that we're going to talk about today. Uh, but Je- Jeff Daniels, the director of NASA, uh, is great in this role. You also have Kristen Wiig as the NASA PR director. Uh, Michael Penna as one of the crew members. He's the navigator. Uh, Kate Mara, Sebastian St- Stan, all these great actors uh, in in this in this movie, and it's it's pretty impressive um, the number of people that they get. They even get Sean Bean uh, of Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings lore uh, to come on as the NASA flight director, which so. is ironic because he has a crippling fear of flying. So. <laughs> no kidding, really. Yeah, yeah. So um, interesting that he's the flight director. Well, he's you know he's on the ground. He's not actually <laughs> to go up there. <laughs> there he sends with people to do his work for him. Uh, but it's it's a great cast uh, for sure. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes liked it too, ninety two percent of the critics there. Uh, so it was it's a pretty popular movie, and it did fairly well on a hundred and eight million dollar budget. It made six hundred and thirty million worldwide. I think it was Ridley Scott, his biggest film, uh, in terms of the box office. So it was done pretty well. Um, so now let's actually go through and talk a little bit about the the movie itself. Um, I when I first saw this film, 
funnily enough, uh, it was at work. So at, at, at George Washington University, where I work, we all got together and we watched the film with Scott Pace, who is the director of our Space Policy Institute. He was a former associate administrator for program analysis and evaluation at NASA. He's been working essentially on, on space policy at NASA or some sort of NASA or space-related field uh, for decades. So we did kind of what we do on this podcast. It was, it was pretty fun. Watched the movie, and he pointed out and did the basically like an, a mystery science theater 3000 kind of riff. Here's what was right. Here's what was wrong. A lot of pausing the movie as we're watching it. You're lucky. I don't get to watch movies at work, Tim. It was pretty nice. It was over two two days. We had free popcorn. It's really the, beer. Did you get beer? Uh, there was beer. Oh, it man. was. It's certainly uh, we don't get healthcare, but we get this. It's pretty nice. <laughs> um, so let's go through the plot pretty quickly. Usually Joel uh, would do this, but I rewatched the movie recently, so I can kind of go through, and you can kind of interject when you remember some things that I'll I'll be forgetting. Warning, warning, warning. Nope, that's not your low oxygen alarm. It's simply a spoiler warning that we will get pretty much into the details of the Martian, the book, and the movie, uh, and also we're gonna talk a little bit about gravity later on too. So if you haven't seen those things uh, you haven't read that book uh, get on it or listen to us uh, babble about it and see if you're actually even interested in it but we get pretty much into the entire uh, weeds about this the only way to get super critical about it is to pretty much spoil it for someone who hasn't seen it but so set the stage 2035 we have missions to mars this is actually not the first one which was pretty interesting it's not the first one it's the third one so we've already done this a little bit it's now it's just con- the continuing science uh, of everything, so we kind of have a, a sense of how this is going to work. It's the Ares mission, uh, Ares three, but something goes wrong. Uh, there's a storm. There's a massive, fierce storm that has reached lo- way levels higher than what is acceptable for NASA. The the MAV, the Mars Ascent vehicle that they use to get back up to the big ship, the the Hermes that takes them back and forth between Earth and Mars, that's about to tip over. They need to get up and out. They try to get out. Poor Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon, gets hit by an antenna. Those flying antennas, if you don't tie them down right, knocks them out. Everyone thinks he's dead, so they leave. Can, can, can we just stop here and point out what a trope the Martian dust storm is for any movie involving Mars or any TV show involving Mars? There's always going to be a dust storm. Red dust flying in your face. Exactly. It's going to happen. But we'll talk a little bit about why um, maybe that wouldn't actually happen, but it certainly happens in movies quite a bit. So Watney gets left behind when they think he's dead. Turns out he's not. He has to essentially live on Mars for quite a while by himself. Not knowing if anyone knows if he's alive. What does he use to, to stay alive, Gabe? Uh, well, he has a, a, whole, uh, a whole host of things, uh, you know, materials that were left behind. But he basically uh, needs to use science to, to survive, to make best use out of those resources and create some new ones. The magic of science. Exactly. Uh, well, he, he sciences the shit out of this stuff, as he says. NASA eventually finds out that he's alive. They take some satellite imagery, notice some things have been moved around. Ultimately, they're able to communicate with him because Mark uh, does some pretty good thinking. He finds the old Pathfinder uh, rover, which had been sent years previously and no longer was working. Uh, but he was able to grab it, uh, plug it back into a new battery, and was able then to communicate with NASA. Uh, basically, the, his plan is um, he needs to get to this other mission site because they, instead of having the the Mars Ascent vehicle for each mission come with them, uh, which would be pretty tiresome, it's a lot of stuff to carry, they send all that stuff on a separate rocket ahead of time. It's there waiting for him. He just has to get there. He has a couple of things that he has to solve over the, over the course of the movie to stay alive. His big problems are food, has to make some food, water. Needs to make water so that he can drink and, and uh, basically grow his food as the planet's best botanist, as he refers to himself a number of times. He's quite good at growing potatoes, um, which we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. He needs heat to keep warm on this mission in the rover to get from his HAB site where he is living to this other site, which is 36,000 kilometers away. It takes about, I think, because in, in the book, it took about 50 days for him to get over there. At least that was the plan. Good news. I may have a solution to my heating problem. Bad news, it involves me digging up the radioisotope thermoelectric generator. Now, if I remember my training correctly, one of the lessons was titled, Don't Dig Up the Big Box of Plutonium, Mark. I get it. RTGs are good for spacecraft, but if they rupture around humans, no more humans. Which is why we buried it when we arrived. And planted that flag so we would never be stupid enough to accidentally go near it again. But, as long as I don't break it... (laughs) I almost just said everything will be fine out loud. Look, the point is, I'm not cold anymore. 
And sure, I could choose to think about the fact that I'm warm because I have a decaying radioactive isotope riding right behind me. But right now, I got bigger problems on my hands. Uh, he he digs up a uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generator, uh, the RTG, uh, which they buried because they thought it was dangerous. They put it up a little flag with skull and crossbones and a nuclear symbol behind it, you know, to stay away. But he digs that back up and and puts it in his rover, keeps him warm. And he basically gets over there uh, after after having all this survival thing and then travels back up. The, the Hermes meets up with him, um, kind of a crazy space thing right at the end where he pretends to be Iron Man for a little while by opening up the, the oxygen in his uh, suit and flies around in space. Uh, and then they have a nice little epilogue at the end where it looks like now he's a teacher uh, teaching at, at NASA the new astronauts how to survive. So I love the science in this movie. It's really it's it's yeah. pretty fun. It's certainly a movie that was built by the people that made it and by people that watched it and the science and the scientific community as a movie that's incredibly realistic. When you come with that as your selling point, it allows people like us uh, to go without any sort of guilt or conscience about what the things that maybe get wrong. When you claim you're realistic and you're not in every single area, it's good to nitpick. But it, they do get some great get some things right. Uh, the whole idea of growing potatoes, which he does on Mars is kind of fun because they have everything else is processed food that they give all the astronauts on Mars but in the in the book they talk about this a little bit better for Thanksgiving because they were going to be there during Thanksgiving they give them real potatoes something to cook which is supposed to be a way to bond amongst everybody unfortunately if you take a potato you cut it in half you find out where the eye of the potato is you plant that you got yeah. yourself a new potato so that was that was pretty fun although he had to use his own uh, feces to fertilize the potato so I guess you, you want to eat, but you still have to eat with your own poop. Yeah, it gives uh, new meaning to the term shitty food. Yep, 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 yep. Um, I, I don't think I'm, I'm going to plant any of those kind of things in our garden, on our balcony. <laughs> so there's a couple non-nuclear things that the, the movie takes a little bit of liberty with. The biggest one, which you've already alluded to, is the idea of a, can a sandstorm on Mars do what they do with the movie, which right. is you know 100-plus mile winds, uh, knocking things over causing low visibility, all of those things, it seems pretty right. Because, you know, a whole, essentially a planet with little water and desert, you kind of would imagine there would be a big sandstorm. But, Gabe, is that is that right? Can you something like this happen? The, the problem is, if this were on Earth, yeah, it would probably look like it did in the movie, which was quite violent. But um, the, the Martian atmosphere is a lot different than the Earth's atmosphere. It's, it's only about 1% as dense as the Earth's atmosphere, uh, meaning that for any, you know, cubic foot you're going to get one percent of the total um atmosphere of, that you would have on mars you'll get one percent of what would be in that equivalent cubic foot on earth so if you had a 100 mile per hour wind hitting you uh that would really feel like the equivalent of just 10 miles per hour so essentially it's, it's, an, it's like an annoying kid blowing in your face when yeah. you're trying to watch a tv show uh, <laughs> yeah. it's not cer certainly not something that can uh, knock over uh, an antenna in you know, knock over uh, Matt Damon 100 miles away. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, I think for for this, once again, this is a, this is kind of like a movie trope for Martian movies where there, there's wind. But as you say, I mean, the movie that's trying to be very accurate, it would seem that the author would have been able to come up with maybe some other way that Watney, because it's really a plot device to just get him stranded there. Yeah, I, I think initially there's some interview that he said that he wanted like an explosion to take place, but he couldn't come up with a way to make that interesting other than just an explosion right so because he has an explosion take place later on in the movie right too. right so the sandstorm seems like a cool scene and it was oh yeah for the movie but he i think he even recognizes that there's a few things where he says i'm going to try to be as accurate as possible but this is something i'm just going to have to do because it looks cool and it's i have to set up the plot and yeah. there's a few other things like that, like the idea they have artificial gravity on the Hermes spaceship, but it doesn't spin fast enough. The way they, the, the spaceship spins uh, in a certain direction and yeah. a certain speed, you can create artificial gravity. It doesn't do that, but it also wouldn't look that cool if you have this spinning spaceship. It looks kind of weird. Yeah, and this is a um, – there's a great piece on Wired we, we should – Try to pull it up in the show notes where they actually yeah. derive like exactly the speed that uh, a ship like that would need to be spinning. Because once again, a big movie trope. Yep, and you also don't see him hopping around on on the on the planet Mars. Uh, right, it has a lot less gravity. I think it's forty percent of Earth. Um, so you wouldn't be like on the moon where you'd be jumping 
around, but it would be like little short hops and stuff. But no one really wants to see Matt Damon hop around. Although they did do some stuff. Supposedly they filmed uh, everything on Mars a little bit slower okay. than what you would normally would think, which really? gives it that feeling um, that, that he's moving slower because of maybe bouncing or whatever it is. But Yeah, but it's 40% gravity. You would, it would be, be noticed. Yeah, you'd notice it. Um, but it, what it does pose a filmmaking challenge when you film that slow is because they had to redub all of his lines oh. <laughs> later on. And one more interesting thing I didn't realize until I saw the, read the movie later on, every time he's outside in his spacesuit, his helmet is CGI. Oh, really? Except for like really close-up shots. It's all CGI because they were worried that if the visor was reflective... It would reflect onto the green screen. The whole helmet or just the the glass part? The, the, the glass part okay. and other parts of it, too. Oh, wow. It depends on the shot, I think, the angle that they were going for. Crazy what they can do. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, you, you criticize special effects when you notice them, and they're bad. But most of the time, you're like, <laughs> oh, obviously, they're not on Mars. But most yeah. of this movie was filmed in a, a huge soundstage somewhere. Uh, props to them to be able to do all yeah, those things. Yeah, for sure. But that's enough, that's enough non-nuclear nitpicking. Let's get to three things that I think would be fascinating to talk about. One... Uh, lifetime radiation exposure for astronauts in real life and in this movie. Two, let's talk about that RTG, radio, radioisotope thermoelectric generator. Are those things real? Uh, the movie poses them as a huge danger to the point where you would bury it, you know, yards away and what, with the crazy flag that's a skull and crossbones. Well, what, what do they do? Are they actually dangerous? And the third thing is the idea of uh, using nuclear power to travel around in space to get off the ground on Earth. And once you're up there, um, how do they do it? Before we finally talk about the movie overall and kind of what we thought about it. So let's get started. Lifetime radiation exposure for astronauts. This is a really big challenge for people that work at NASA. That was the biggest thing that Scott Pace mentioned uh, over the course of our discussion at work is that's a huge problem that NASA is going to have to solve if it's going to want to do anything close to, to go to Mars. Because actually a lot of the International Space Station is still within the Earth's atmosphere enough that a lot of those cosmic rays, those radiation sources, either from the, our own star or other stars exploding, producing radiation in space, it's still protected in the International Space Station. And even when it, in terms of going to the moon, it's such a short trip that astronauts can, can kind of go back and they can do multiple trips back and forth. But every astronaut still has a lifetime limit that NASA will track anytime they go out on their EVA missions outside on their spa in their spacesuits. They have to have a dose meter on their suit and, it, and NASA will keep track of it. And they, they don't let any sort of risk um, more than 4% of simply if you were living on Earth, like a 4% more of a chance of, of generating cancers or other kind of radiation sicknesses. Once you reach that point, it's like three to 4%, they don't let you go up anymore in your cap from going into the future. For the book, uh, Andy Weir, the author said, well, sometime between now and then, they've invented some kind of magic suit fabric that protects um, people from being able to survive. Like they, right, yeah. <laughs> Mark Watney would have some sort of uh, protection when he's in the hab, that inflatable, uh, essentially a home that he lives on, on on Mars. But once he's out walking about and in the rover, those kind of the places is really where you would have to worry about radiation exposure. Even uh, even the best writers can pull a rabbit out of the hat sometimes and get away with it, it seems. But... Yeah, pretty much. Uh, a quote he has from him is, in the book, they have this really thin, light, flexible material that blocks all radiation. There's nothing even remotely like that in our real world. That was the magic I gave him so the story could progress. Otherwise, Mark would have different kinds of cancer. Surprisingly enough, uh, the people on the Hermes mission, the rest of the crew that left Mark Watney for, for dead, um, they would actually have a, a larger risk than he would. Because when you're standing on Mars... Fortunately, the Martian soil, anything below you, is blocking the radiation from the rest of the the, the universe. It's uh, it's interesting. I'm watching on National Geographic. They're doing this series uh, called Mars. Mm. Uh, I think Ron Howard um, is, is involved with it. And actually, this radiation thing is a major uh, plot device there. Where one of the you know once again spoilers for for that show, but um, they actually a major part of that series is them trying to find an underground cave where they can establish the first human colony. And that's um, what, that's a lot of what the the futurists uh, that want to go to Mars. Say you don't build above ground things; you go underground. Oh. Um, so that's cool that the that the show is, is yeah. And that. It's interesting because it this show has a lot of these other tropes, sandstorms, and you know the no gravity. But to to include that, it's kind of cool. So so Do Dr. Ron Turner, who's a distinguished analyst at Answer, which is a public service research institute in Virginia, he watched the movie and he read the book and he has some things to say about radiation. 
He said, well, Andy Weir, the author, does a good job of representing the threats faced by Mark Watney stranded on Mars. He is silent on the threat of radiation, not just to Mark, but particularly to the crew of the Hermes as they execute a daring rescue mission that has more than doubles their time in space. This, this guy, Dr. Turner, estimates that Watney's radiation dosage is actually translate to a risk of cancer in addition to the 3% standard that NASA sets between a quarter of a percent to 3.25% additional risk of uh, increasing of cancers or other kind of illnesses that can come about from radiation exposure, which could have neurological problems that generate similar symptoms like Alzheimer's or reduced immune uh, efficiency disorders and those kind of things. And even the people on the, on the Hermes crew actually could have an increased risk on top of that, that initial 3%, uh, upwards of 7.6% additional risk. These are pretty big numbers when it comes to whether or not they can survive uh, for a normal life once they get back on Earth. The, in the epilogue, it certainly seems like he's getting ready to go on with his life. I think it says day one. Uh, of his of his new life being a teacher, but it's sad to think about. But it doesn't. If they follow the rules of radiation, he's going to have some problems coming forward. And especially, the think it's sad. The crew, too, uh, is also going to be suffering some things. But but I think it's an important thing to, for people that watch these movies uh, and read the book to know that radiation is a problem uh, for astronauts and for NASA in real life too. So what's next, Tim? So the, I think next on the list was the the RTG, which was the other nuclear. Uh... Uh, nuclear issue in this movie. Yeah, let's talk about that. I thought that was one of the cooler parts of the movie for me. Well, the movie has just a few scenes about it, but then when I read the book, uh, it's a it's a huge portion right, of the book. Right. He does some fun stuff with this. Uh, it's RTG. He uses the heat not only to keep his rover warm, but he puts it in a in water and has a bath because he's pretty stinky and he doesn't have a chance yeah. to. He has like back problems uh, in the book because he's lifting all these heavy things. Yes, he is. He has a hot tub. Yeah, he's a hot tub. No, yeah. it it was. Uh, it's also the source of some good gallows humor, if I recall from the movie. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, it's great. So let's talk a little bit about the RTGs, because uh, you, 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 you've been following the RTG uh, community. Because uh, you said you used to work at NASA for an intern. I, I interned. I interned at NASA in college. Uh, I didn't do any science there. I was in the history division. Still, that's pretty uh, cool. Yeah, no, it was cool, but still got to poke through the archives and see some of the old, you know, Mars stuff. And uh, yeah, no, this is actually a technology that goes back uh, to the fifties. Uh, it was invented in the 50s and I think first used in the early 60s. Yeah. Um, it was it was invented in 1954 uh, by Ken Jordan and John Bearden. Uh, it was such a great invention that it got them into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. So that's, that's, that's a pretty good start to your, to your career. Um, it generates heat through the decay of a particular isotope of plutonium. This is important because normally people associate plutonium. It's green. It glows. You use it in a nuclear bomb. Well, there's different isotopes of plutonium. The one you use in a bomb is 239. Heat is generated from the natural decay of these of this particular isotope of plutonium because uh, it, it has a relatively short half-life uh, of 90 years, meaning that's a lot of radiation and heat that gets produced. What they do is they use the heat from, these, from this radioactivity using these things called thermocouples, uh, which will take advantage of the differences in temperature in certain metals, the electrons within those metals. Now, this is some science that I don't really understand too much, but there's a certain uh, particular uh, theorem or an effect called the Seaback effect, where you have electrons in these two different types of metals, and when they're put next to each other with the differential heat, they get excited, and that difference creates a current, which the RTG will then convert from, you know, kind of basic electro uh, electron currency into a not a very efficient, um, but a, a power source nonetheless. But that's not what really matters. What matters is the heat. That gets produced because on these Mars missions, it keeps the the wiring warm in in the in the vacuum of space, and it produces just enough electricity and power to generate uh, these long term, long distance missions uh, that NASA uses them for. So, for for those out there who aren't maybe as hardcore as you are, how would you explain the difference between this kind of small version and say like a big nuclear reactor that has right. turbines and They're everything? completely fundamentally different reactions. Uh, an RTG does not produce uh, fission, okay, and that's how a uh, a, a nuclear power reactor works. So it, you try to generate additional fission the way you can uh, align the plutonium, uh, which is not plutonium-238. It's other types of plutonium uh, or mostly uranium. It uh, depends on the type of reactor and, and all of that. But it uses fission to basically heat up water, and that water uh, gets into, turns into steam or in other ways, but it turns into steam in some way, and that generates uh, traditional t- uh, turbines and, and generation of electricity. This... Uh, uses this low, inefficient uh, heat transfer 
uh, to produce the power source itself. Really fascinating things. There are no movable parts in an RTG. Everything kind of operates by itself. They use these things in a lot of different missions. First used for a navigation satellite in June 1961. And by the count that I read, uh, over 45 RTGs have been used on 26 space systems by NASA. NASA was even trying to think about ways of using them for pacemakers inside your heart because it's a better than in a battery, they'll last longer. But it turns out that when someone dies with one of these things in them and you get cremated, for example, the real big problem with plutonium-238 is if you take the plutonium-238 and grind it up into a powder and you inhale it, it's very lethal. Oh, wow. So similar to, I think it was like Night of the Living Dead, when they burn uh, zombie parts and they make smoke in a crematorium, that turns everyone else into zombie that, bre that breeds that kind of stuff. Uh, so that certainly was a problem was why they didn't proceed to... Uh, use them in pacemakers, but they use them in a lot of different things. The NASA's used them on moon missions, uh, uh, the Pioneer uh, satellites. They've used them in the Viking Mars landers, Voyager spacecraft, uh, and then the Curiosity rover that's on Mars today is using an RTG to as, as part of a power source for that. And they've also have other ones planned in the future. The Russians even used them for powering lighthouses in other places, uh, in remote locations where you don't have to keep people for a very long period of time. Another reason why these things are great um, for this type of an emission is when you have most types of propulsion systems, they're chemical based. It's burning some kind of a fuel to produce the force. Well, this one, it's, it's great because that type of fuel you would need for a chemical reaction weighs a lot. You have to bring that fuel and it, 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 it's, you know, it's very heavy. Uh, an RTG, in terms of its mass per power out, output, is, is very good ratio. I think these things tend to weigh about 90 pounds and they last for decades. The Voyager uh, probe has been going out into deep space for decades now and it's still pretty uh, pretty good efficiency um, even as long as it has been going so it's these, these are very impressive systems and it's, it's exciting to see one of them uh, in the movie itself so tim can you tell me a little bit more about this plutonium uh, 238 that gets used in it because you were saying it's a special yeah, it's 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 much different than the okay. ones you use for a bomb uh, so plutonium-238, the reason why they come up with that number for the isotope, has 144 neutrons plus 94 protons. Now, I'm not great at math, but if you add those up, it gets to 238. Uh, so that's that particular isotope. Plutonium-239 has a different number of, of neutrons. To uh, It's that other isotope there. So this was actually the first isotope of plutonium that was discovered, essentially created. Scientists knew back before the Manhattan Project, that there could be these heavier... So every time you get up in the numbers, like 238, plutonium, that's a heavy, heavy element. Like hydrogen is the... Is the heavy lightest. heavy meaning... Heavy meaning that it, that it has a larger number of protons. Okay. Um, so hydrogen is one. If you look to Khmer from your high school, uh, you, you're more advanced than this as a geologist and all this stuff, but if you you know your different elements, um, hydrogen is very light, and plutonium and uranium are pretty on, on the higher end of that. So they knew these things existed theoretically. If you just add a couple more new protons, you'd get these, right. these heavier isotopes. Plutonium-238 was actually the first one that was created. It was created by uh, a physicist on the Manhattan Project named Glenn Seaborg. Uh, who's a brilliant guy. I followed him quite a bit because he's very quite a big impact on, on arms control and, and nuclear weapons. Um, but it was a byproduct of taking uranium, which is what you use in a power reactor as well as uh, an atomic bomb, uh, and it becomes uh, neptunium-238, which then ultimately decays into plutonium-238. But it's a very rare isotope, so they have to create it. Uh, and that's actually one of the big problems is because the U.S. is running out of um, uranium or plutonium-238. So how much more do we have left? Uh, the, the one study that I saw um, had an estimate that we only have enough for three uh, future RTGs. Really? We have one that's already even dedicated to a future um, rover, one that might go to a rover, and then one that's there's either figuring out a mission for or it's unclear. We actually buy a lot of our stuff now from the Russians who have a large stockpile of this. But even that large stockpile is dwindling uh, quite a bit. So they're trying to figure out in the United States, we haven't produced this stuff uh, for quite a while, since 1988. And Oak Ridge in Tennessee, one of the national laboratories, is is making some progress on, on being able to build this. They have a dedicated mission to building this stuff. And I think it was February of 2013, they uh, were able to produce some small amount of this stuff, a couple grams, and they're now doing tests on it to see if it's going to be enough. All right, Tim. So you said there's only a few grams that they were able to create. How much? How much do you actually need for one of these things? Well, I mean, pretty good number. I think it's uh, the most of the things that I've seen is about four point eight 
kilograms. Okay, so uh, about 10 pounds. About 10 pounds. So they, they have a little bit more work to do um, before they're able to get it. But in the movie and in the book, these RTGs are described as fairly dangerous. Uh, they're a plot device that produce, that uh, represents risk for Mark Watney. You know, they bury it. The Commander Lewis like, goes away and they bury it and they put a flag up, which again has skull and crossbones right. on it. Something to stay away from. Um, so it, it, are these things dangerous? Now, this is this is actually pretty another one of those uh, movie trope, um, movie license things that, that the, they come up with here. One of the big problems with a lot of plutonium is, you know, the radiation that gets produced from it. Well, plutonium-238, yeah, it's very radioactive, but the big thing that it produces are alpha particles. Alpha particles are not so dangerous when you're, you can hold on to them because they, they produce some heat, so you might get burned. Um, but they, these alpha particles are fairly weak. They're, they're the frequencies that they operate in get blocked by things like aluminum, paper, sheets of paper, and skin. luckily our skin. There you go. Um, now, where they are dangerous is if they get turned into powder and are either ingested or uh, in, inhaled. If they get to certain things, it really affects bones and liver, uh, and it can get into your lungs. That can cause some pretty heavy cancers. Not immediate death, but within you know several uh, days or weeks. Uh, it can, it can, it's not a good way to go. And so these things, they, there's no other beta or gamma radiation. It's just a, sl a slight amount of, okay. of uh, there are other parts of it. So it's not a complete, uh, you know, no, don't worry about. It. I think one of the studies that I saw uh, said that it's the equivalent if you're the, next to an RTG for 10 days. Um, it's the equivalent of one year's worth of allowable dose for people okay. that normally work in. And radiation. So compared to freezing on Mars in a rover right. uh, for 50 days on the way over there or, you know, taking an additional year, that's not too bad. That's a pretty good trade-off that you can make. Uh, but it's certainly not the way they describe in the movie, which is NASA's worried being that close to right. an RTG. If anything, it's fascinating that they go out and they bury it because even if these things explode, unless it basically turns these things, the, the plutonium into powder – um, it would, it would, that would really the problem. And also when you're in space and things get turned into powder, you're not breathing it in unless it's inside of a room. That's that same atmosphere. Exactly. And, yeah. And you, have your you, know, yeah. you have your goggles off and all that stuff. These RTGs are designed to survive re-entry. Been some accidents with RTGs exploding, uh, either coming in from space or on their way up into space. One of the most famous examples is it was related to Apollo 13. Uh, that famous that famous mission where things went wrong, uh, they had to get our astronauts back. You know Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon and all yeah. that stuff. Uh, well, the lunar modular burned up in the Earth's atmosphere on its way down, and one of the things that survived was the RTG. On the previous Apollo missions, the lunar module had been left on the moon, so right. it was never intended to ever come back. Exactly, so but they, they needed it. Yeah, they never worried about that, and this was one case where they had to deal with it. And I think they did some tests in the ocean and found it crashed near Fiji, and they, they yep. determined that there was no... No leakage. Yeah, no leakage. Now, it's there. Right. It's going to be radioactive for thousands of years. It's not something to go, you know, to go touch and hit with a rock. It's not like a, a hollow center to this reactor, and it's filled with liquid plutonium. These things are turned into pellets, and they're mixed with other types of metals, and they're encased in other types of metals. It's like an insulator, so that also helps them produce heat. So if these things were to, you know, if you were to break it open with a rock, you then have to then break individual piece of these pellets, which are designed not to be dispersed over a wide area, but to essentially stay in these casings. The amount of danger that's there, yes, there's some uh, beta and, and gamma radiation if you're there for quite a while. Yes, it produces a lot of heat, which you need to worry about. I think one of the videos we watched from Oak Ridge talked about it. It's a small campfire inside of your rover. So if you imagine you had a small campfire in the backseat of your Toyota Corolla, that's certainly a problem. He does some things in the book where he puts it in, in water to make, you know, boil some water and that produces heat. I think in the movie he just wraps it up in some mylar or something uh, and that, that reduces the heat. So these are the things you worry about with an RTG. It's not, you know, you can't, you can stand next to it and you can hold on to one of these things and it won't kill you immediately. There's been a few other examples. One of my favorite uh, things that I, I came across here is there was an RTG that was lost in the Himalayas, in India. The CIA uh, supposedly put one up to uh, power a, a monitor to basically tested Chinese rockets that went up and tried to check the, the telemetry data on them, you know, a little sneaky spy stuff. Uh, one thing they didn't expect would, was this uh, earthquake that caused an avalanche, and a snowstorm that caused an avalanche, and then essentially this RTG was lost. They don't know where it is. It's somewhere. Hopefully no kid finds it. 
uh, and thinks that it's a toy. Because they look a lot like they do in the movie, where they have the fins on the outside. They're, they're pretty cool-looking things. Yeah, like a radiator or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, it's So, again, it's weird that they buried it in the movie and the book, because the amount of radiation, yeah, there is that kind of gamma and beta stuff, but it's, it's a lot less uh, than cosmic radiation than they would be naturally getting. And also, if supposedly, if he's wearing a spacesuit that has this magic ability to block radiation from the sun, it's going to block whatever radiation they're going to get from an RTG. So it's one of those things where he mentions a couple of times, uh, yeah, in the, in the movie they mention that the Mars atmosphere is so thin, at the end of the movie, they can take the dome off of the, uh, the, the ascent vehicle, because it doesn't matter. Uh, but then... They mentioned early on that the atmosphere is so thin, but it still has that storm. And it still causes the canvas to fall off when they end of the movie. So like, I have all these problems where they mention something previously and then they ignore it later on. So sometimes it's a little consistent. They have this magic radiation blocking material, but they can't sit next to a radioactive source for any period of time. I think, so. I think, you're, uh, I think you're just a little upset, Tim, because this, this movie kind of gives radiation a bad name or a spooky you know but it's like a boogeyman in this uh you know they just seem like they use it to get people scared well i don't like radiation either but i, I like to have my my threats to be real right because um, these because rtgs have a great mission to serve for, for for mars and future uh space program activities hopefully you know people go oh well why would you use something so dangerous and but i, I think it's you know anytime you mention radioactive or radioactivity it, Without any understanding of the science, it's kind of just assumed to be something that's terrible and, you know, always going to be very harmful and this kind of right. thing. And or that any kind of plutonium can also be used to make a bomb, which is very different, as we kind of talked about. All right. So the final nuclear thing I want to get to, uh, let's, this is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Using nuclear power or using the force of a nuclear weapon exploding to propel and power spacecraft. I, when I was at the... Um, National Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas, which is a great place if you're ever in Las Vegas, forget the casinos, uh, go to this museum. And they have a display up there of how they used to try to make, uh, use nuclear thermal rockets to lift off from Earth and to power rockets uh, once they're into space. This, so, sound, this sounds completely terrifying. This is, this is a pretty normal system here. We'll talk about the crazy one later. This is Project Rover. So this is a big project that Los Alamos National Lab ran from 1955 until 1972. Uh, and more or less, there was, uh, they proved the feasibility of these things, which are called NERVAs, or Nuclear Engines for Rocket Vehicle Application. That's an acronym that tells you exactly uh, what this is. These nuclear thermal rockets uh, will heat some kind of fluid, usually uh, hydrogen, because uh, again, it's light and it's kind of easy to work with. When you heat a gas, it expands, and it will then get shot out of a rocket nozzle at just the right angle that you want to produce thrust, and that will launch it up, uh, the, whatever your payload is, and then out into space. It was stopped uh, roughly in that early part of the 70s because the budget for NASA kind of collapsed. So instead of doing both a chemical rocket platform and this nuclear one, which had been proven uh, at the latest stage, right up until where you would build a prototype to, to proven to work, they only went with the chemical one. So who knows what NASA would be like today if they continued to use these nuclear powered rockets. Now, of course, you mentioned that was scary to us. One of the concerns that people did have was if there was an explosion uh, yeah. when it was taken off, you would have nuclear uh, waste all, all around. Now, the proponents of this would counter and say that these things are designed not to disperse your radiation and the radioactive materials everywhere. They would eventually fall in one spot. Uh, they wouldn't, you know, burst into air, into the air, and all that. Certainly, that was a problem. Um, but that was that combined with a, a budget crunch meant that this system never went forward. But it's certainly a fascinating thing that we'll link to. Like, there's a lot of great history. Um, some of it's from NASA and other from other sources about why these things uh, didn't go. Uh, further than the essentially the design stage and then get to that prototype stage. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, do you think this kind of thing could ever be used in the future? Is there any talk about resurrecting this, or you think the the fears are just? Uh... Uh, well, I think it all it all depends on what you what you want. You know, kind right. of what you want to give NASA the money to to design these things. Yeah, uh, and how because getting off essentially, you know, get, getting from breaking the Earth's orbit. Um, an Earth's gravitational pull. That's the really hard part in terms of the amount of mass that you need for, for rockets. Now, there's different ways that people are trying to d deal with that. There's the the um, 
there's the Elon, Elon Musk, Musk method, yeah, yeah, where you reuse the rocket itself. It's a little uh, bit cheaper than a little cheaper. Yeah, yeah, you get the economies of scale. There's the the crazy wide-eyed idea of building a space elevator, where you use nano fibers uh, to create essentially a long rope out into space somewhere around, connecting to the Earth's equator, and you have it go up and down like an elevator. If that were to work, that would essentially drop the cost. There's different systems that people are trying to come up with to solve this problem, and I would not be surprised if nuclear power got its way back into that. Um, but one thing I think that probably won't come back uh, into, into favor is Project Orion, which is the other system that I want to talk about here. This was an idea that NASA floated around uh, in the, uh, the, the late 50s and early 60s, where you would use the explosive force of a small yield nuclear bomb to launch spacecraft out of Earth's gravitational pull, as well as traveling long distances to to Jupiter, to Saturn, to Mars, all of those things using just the explosion power force of a of a friendly nuclear bomb. Uh, so let's talk about this a little bit. Have you, have you heard about this this system before? Uh, no, I, I have not, and also sounds very terrifying. I, I had no idea this existed until I read my other beach uh, reading book, a book that I recommended on the podcast before where I've only read parts of it, but I didn't get to this fun part. Uh, so Ted Taylor was a young uh, physicist who wasn't on the Manhattan Project, but came on a little bit later on. He's kind of like Einstein. He's very fascinating. He wasn't very good at math. Like, he was good at math, but he wasn't great at math. He wasn't great at physics. He wasn't great at the, the that kind of part of it, but he was a theoretical uh, guy. He came up with the ideas of the most efficient fission bomb. Uh, when people were already talking about hydrogen bombs, he came up with a way to get higher yield with using less material. He also created the Davy Crockett, which was the nuclear arsenal um, artillery that they would use to fire out of a cannon uh, during war. He came up with ideas of making smaller and smaller bombs, and eventually he wanted to make small bombs to be used to propel spacecraft. So here's a description from the, the book, The Curve of Binding Energy by John McPhee, who's written a lot of great books on all kinds of material. Yeah, including geology, basin, and range. Yep. This is a fascinating description. So this is the description of Project Orion. Essentially flat on the bottom, Orion was going to look like the nose of a bullet, the head of a rocket, the hat of a bishop. The diameter would be 135 feet. The attending launching site was Jackass Flats in Nevada, where they do a lot of nuclear testing, uh, where Orion would sit on a set of eight towers, 250 high. Inside Orion would be 2,000 nuclear bombs stored in cans. They would be dispensed one at a time down a shaft through a hole at the bottom of the ship. They actually talked to the Coca-Cola company and their vent because they're vending machines. You know how you as can of soda comes out. They wanted to find that technology and use it in this system. So as it continues, then they would be blown out of the ship by compressed nitrogen, detonated 100 feet below. The initial launching bomb would only yield a one-tenth of a kiloton. The next bomb, a second later, would yield two-tenths of a kiloton. 200 kilotons in all would be needed to power the ship to get out of the atmosphere, and this thrust would be generated by 50 bombs of graduated range, the 50th of which would be 20 kilotons, roughly about what they, the bomb yield that destroyed uh, Nagasaki. Um, and it goes on there. NASA called the Orion's nuclear explosives uh, pulse units, Air Force called them charge propellant systems. Taylor called them nuclear bombs. You, you would have this system, essentially like a nose uh, of a bullet, and at the bottom of it would be uh, flat and flared out a little bit. An explosion would take place of a nuclear bomb, a small one, a, a charge that was trying to get to go up. It would propel something like either water or hydrogen or plastic, some sort of force so it's not just the shockwave. And it would, a bunch of these nuclear explosions would happen and then we'd get it out to space because theoretically this would work. They've done, they did some studies uh, using uh, explosions and all that kind of stuff, and it, it was proving to work. NASA got pretty excited about it. The Air Force got pretty excited about it. Uh, they got funding from the government. It, it worked through, and it was getting on its way there. Of course, there were some concerns. It's two thousand nuclear bombs. Yeah, you're sitting on top of a not only one nuclear yeah. weapon, but like two thousand. Yeah, two thousand, like um, a whole arsenal. It was there was there were some concerns for sure. The the military because they had they essentially took over part of the project started to wanting to use it for not just Mars you know exploration missions but they wanted to use it for a base 
that they would put up into space. Very scary stuff, similar to when we had our podcast episode on Star Trek uh, Assignment Earth, right. wanting to have orbiting space platforms. Yeah, exactly. Kind of similar to that. But this pesky treaty in 1963, the Partial oh. Test Ban Treaty, prohibited the ex- explosive testing or use of nuclear weapons in outer space. Once that happened, that pretty much put a damper on this uh, on this particular project. I mean, this seems this seems horrendously inefficient as well because you're 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 just detonating these nuclear weapons, like discharging all this heat and energy, and you just get a little bit of that upward. Mo- I mean, to to get twenty, how many did you say need to be dropped out? Twenty. Uh, it would take two hundred kilotons to to launch that up into space. So I think it's like fifty bombs, something along those lines, to get it out into space. But you have a bunch of other ones too. To use once you get up there to get you all the way to Mars. And was this um, was this supposed to be more effective or more efficient yeah. than a chemical than the equivalent? Let's say you launch, you know, right. however many rockets you need to get all this stuff up. That was certainly the idea that, okay. it, would, that it would be more efficient. And you do a lot with when you when you hear in, 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 in the Martian. They talked a lot about when they wanted to create the Iris probe uh, or the tension later on that the China version of that. Um, they, they had to worry about mass. Like, what are they going to put right, on the payload right. to make it go fast? If you wanted to go faster, you need a more powerful rocket or you need a smaller payload. Well, the people, when they were designing this system, thought that the amount of lift that they would get uh, with using you know, a bunch of nuclear bombs was so big that they wouldn't even calculate mass anymore. They were going to have these essentially giant uh, office complexes that had kitchens and, and recreation areas and all of this like stuff that they would just bring up there with them. They wouldn't make their own water. They wouldn't recycle urine, as they say in the book. They would just bring more water because they had all this weight to be able to lift up once they got it up into space. Then they would stay up there and they would go back and forth uh, to the various planets that they wanted to, to deliver. Now, it's certainly yeah, it's a very ambitious program. It, it lasted there for quite a while uh, until it was shut down in '63. But it came – it's fascinating because it came from a guy who wanted to work uh, on nuclear bombs because he thought if the U.S. could build these bombs and the Russians would build them too, mutually assured destruction would set in. No one would ever want to use them. But then he ultimately after quite a while working on these things became disillusioned and no longer thought that that was the right mission. He was building these bombs that just got closer and closer to being possibly used. These smaller nuclear bombs, uh, which he thought would be the way to maintain a deterrent. Now people are worried, well, if you can have a bomb that won't destroy an entire city, but maybe just smaller targets, you make it more likely to use them, which then could escalate to a larger war. Right. Uh, so then he shifted all of his focus to space-based things. As it. crazy, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, um, you know, if you told somebody a hundred years ago that that we were going to, you know, have sent somebody to the moon or, or we would have an orbiting right. uh, lab up, you know, International Space Station, it, it, it would probably be just as incredible, so. Yep. All right, so we've already ranted about the nuclear and non-nuclear science of this movie, but I really wanted to orbit around this question one more time, specifically to get into some of the other non-nuclear sides, one of the funniest jokes of this movie, uh, the ideal of Matt Damon being a space pirate. So I called up my friend Chris Mirasola, who's a student at Harvard Law School and the Kennedy School of Government, basically an all-around space maritime guru. So we had this conversation when we first met in China on a long bus ride of kind of the weird things about uh, the Martian. Chris, thank you very much for coming on here, and I want to hear uh, some more what you think about this space pirate nonsense. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so, I mean, like, I, I was going through the quote again um, a- after you got in touch with me, and it's like, it's not completely wrong, right? It's just, like, 90% wrong. Um, so, you know, not bad for, uh, for, for law. He says that in outer space, countries can't appropriate sovereignty, right, over extraterrestrial objects. And that's entirely correct. In the Outer Space Treaty, which is super short, like four pages long, it says that no country can be a sovereign over any kind of extraterrestrial part of space. So the moon, asteroids, including Mars. So that's good. The part that is, um... Not right, unfortunately, if you were looking for space pirates, uh, <laughs> is the uh, maritime law analysis. So basically, most maritime law comes from uh, this treaty that was signed in the 1980s, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Which, which, uh, the, which like. the U.S. has not ratified, but we've signed it? There we go. Yeah, yeah. So we signed it. Um, we have wanted to ratify it since the Clinton administration 
we're just not into it, I guess. Then it's just like, nah, thanks. Um, <laughs> it was like negotiated over the course of like 20 or 30 years. It was absolutely ridiculous. It's a massive, massive treaty, like 300 pages long. So it's, it's like a constitution for the oceans, right? Um, and, and so basically what it says, you have different rules that apply uh, in like maritime zones that are measured from a country's coastline. Okay. Right. Uh, so you have the coast and then there are like uh, three or four zones that kind of go out from the coast. Um, the closer to the coast you are, the more control the country has. The farther away you go, the less control the country has. So what happens is uh, all of those laws and rules are kind of dependent on those zones. And unfortunately, if you're on Mars, where A, you have no water, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least that I know of, um, and B, you have no countries, you then C, have no rules. Um, ah. so, so the rules just like don't apply as, as a matter of like the treaty law. It's a funny joke to, for him to call himself a space pirate. But it looks like it here the the law just doesn't really match up that well. Yeah, no, it it doesn't quite match up. I mean, like I I, I, I like laughed when I was watching it, and then I was angry. <laughs> um, it was like an anger laugh. You know what I mean? I mean, like so he is right that like in the intermediary time when he's not in one of those vessels, there is no international law really governing his behavior. Uh, but there's a part of the Outer Space Treaty that says that his behavior in space is under United States' jurisdiction. Why is that? Um, because basically uh, what the treaty wanted to do was make sure that all activities in space had a state who was responsible for it, right? So, you know, if, if you do something and a ship explodes in outer space and it lands and, you know, destroys someone's car in Tanzania, even if that space shuttle was a private space shuttle, the United States is liable because, you know, we need a, a system for states to be kind of responsible for the actions of all these different things happening in outer space. When our Martian is on Mars, his activities are under the United States' jurisdiction. And so when he commandeers the vessel, he might be like violating U.S. domestic law. I don't think that NASA would, like, prosecute someone who is, like... Probably not. He seems like he's a national hero now. Right, just a little bit. Okay. So one of the things that I thought was interesting, because uh, I read the book recently on a beach yeah. uh, when I was on vacation, because uh, I'm a nerd and I read... I saw a coastline when I saw that. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about maritime law while I was on the beach. The The book has an interesting difference between the movie. I don't know if you read the book before. Oh, no, I hadn't. No. But in the, mo in the movie, he is in communication with NASA pretty much from once he gets Pathfinder working until mm -hmm. he takes off from yeah. the, the Ares 4 launch site. But yeah. in the book, he screws up in, while he's drilling the holes to build uh, something relating to the rover. He mm. short-circuits Pathfinder. So he's mm -hmm. no longer able to be in communication with them. So it's very, it's this suspenseful, scary moment that basically from before he goes on that long journey, he can't yeah. talk to NASA anymore. Oh. So in the movie, um, he's communicating the entire time. But in the book, it makes sense that he says, I was never able to receive explicit permission from NASA to yeah. get access and commandeer the Ares 4 launch vehicle. But in the yeah. movie, why wouldn't they have given him explicit permission? <laughs> constant communication they'd be like all right so here's the plan go ahead and do this i, I don't know if he wants like a, a letter written and notified by a, a certified by a, a notary and stuff he, he'd be a pretty good law uh, a lawyer he, he he wants a notarized copy <laughs> sent to him before he enters the vehicle but it, it's interesting that in the movie they keep that joke because it's funny but yeah even in the context of uh you know if you if you ignore all the law side of these things and yeah. you just look at the scenario, the scenario itself still doesn't make any sense. Again, I didn't get that until I read the book and also I had talked with you. <laughs> We're seven or eight layers into this. <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are deep down the legal rabbit hole. Um, that's interesting. I mean, like if, if he, you know, is completely in, in like communications blackout for the entire time, um, the like I said, the joke works better, and like the legal analysis works a little bit better as well, right? Because the, 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 there was no way for them to ever um, kind of give give permission. The one thing I haven't been able to find is like what uh, NASA's internal kind of policies are around um, NASA employees going into NASA objects. Uh, okay. Right. So like it might be the case that NASA's like, listen, if you get into something that we own and you are one of our employees, you can go in because it's like one of our things. And if it, it if no one's there, then it's fine. 
Um, it might not be part of like the mission directive, uh, but that's not necessarily like a legal liability on his part. Well, thanks, Chris, very much for, for coming on. Uh, I know you write a lot uh, as part of your, your other outside extracurricular work when you don't have stuff to study for at school. Uh, <laughs> but please plug, I think it's called Lawfare Blog. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things to read. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. Um, yeah, so I'm a, kind of a student contributor to, to this uh, national security uh, law blog. Um, and I write every Friday kind of a news roundup on stuff happening in the South China Sea. And then whenever I don't want to be doing the rest of my classwork, <laughs> uh, other like random analysis of uh, legal issues involving China. So mostly uh, like public international law, a little bit of cybersecurity stuff. Uh, it's going to be a lot of great stuff to read over the next four years in terms of our relationship with China. Exciting times. Uh, so anyone, anyone listening, I highly recommend that. I'll put a link to it in our show notes uh, so people can get to it pretty easily. That's lawfareblog.com. I've done the math. Checks out. Rich? Yes, sir. Get out. Let's talk about the movie itself. Uh, Gabe, did you like this film? Yeah, I, I liked it, despite all this kind of, you know, these nits. And yeah, I know it's supposed to be a uh, scientifically accurate film. You know, I thought at, at its core, this is a movie about somebody, you know, solving problems to survive. And, you know, it could have been it could have been in Antarctica. It could have been on the moon. It could have been mm-hmm. wherever. I, I thought the Mars was a, a cool angle of it. But for me, what made the movie is just, you know, a testament to human ingenuity. I thought good cast, well acted, um, good pace, uh, a little bit of humor in there. So I, I did enjoy it. it, it I, th- I thought so too. Um, I like this movie uh, quite a bit. I, I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it, you know, obviously at work so that it was exciting that the, the venue changed there. Uh, I guess maybe any movie I see at work might be more exciting um, than maybe the IMAX screen just because, you know, you're not doing work. But I didn't like it as much as the other big science fiction space movie that came out roughly around the same time, Gravity. At the time, Neil deGrasse Tyson and some other people, some other science-minded folk, uh, attacked that movie for its scientific inaccuracies. And this movie was uh, The Martian was hailed as yeah, it was blessed, scientifically blessed accurate. By the, it was blessed yeah. by the scientific uh, monarchy. In terms of just simply, you know, to have a movie conversation here, films that are described ahead of time as scientifically or technically accurate versus movies that are more focused on storytelling or those two, two different things. I always find that interesting because I liked gravity for the visuals. I liked gravity for the, the way it portrayed uh, the danger of space right. and how space is trying to kill you and, right. and all of that. But I certainly, the, the flaws in that movie technically are, are huge. The idea that you could float from the uh, Hubble spacecraft to the International Space Station to when, where they stored then the, the other kind of the lifeboat, the Soyuz, uh, how to get back to Earth. Those orbiting heights or distances are huge. There's no way you can float between one and the other. The visual and the effect of that movie got me to where I would say literally on the edge of my seat. Like I had tears running down my eyes. I was gripping the edge of my, my armrest. Uh, and that movie on an emotional level and The Martian didn't really do it as much for me. I don't know what it was. I, I liked the movie quite a bit, but I think the problem for me, because of the nature of maybe where this movie came out of, the idea that it's a blog that has problem of the day, here's how I fix it in the next episode, that cyclical, I have a problem, here's how I immediately solve it, to me, didn't work as well. It was a little that, so you say pacing, I think the pacing for me was a little tricky. Okay. And I didn't really enjoy it as much as, as, much as I liked Gravity. Those two movies, uh, I am a little sensitive when people talk about Gravity not being technically accurate, and that's the hit against that movie. And then people are okay with The Martian, which the basic premise of that movie, the ability to, one, survive inside of uh, you know, radiation, but also the idea that he got stuck in a sandstorm that can't possibly happen, but people are willing to give that a pass. So I don't know how to resolve all those questions. Um, it's fascinating to me that a, one movie would get a poetic license right. to allow that storytelling uh, device to go forward. Gravity didn't get that, which we get a lot talking about, you know, these movies that with, deal with nuclear weapons because we, it's kind of started as a joke that I get very frustrated uh, when I watch things that are portrayed incorrectly. But you have to say, does this serve the plot? So I'm willing to most of the time end up saying that's fine. But so these are problems that people have. And I, one of these days, we, I want to have a filmmaker on who has to come up with these challenges. Right. Yeah. How do, what, where do, where do you use poetic license and all that stuff? So 
I would love to continue this conversation, but uh, I don't know if you think about yeah, any of these things when you watch films. I, you know, I, I I think in just looking at these two movies, uh, you know, I would look at The Martian is definitely much more. It, it's like looking at a beautiful piece of art versus a very like technical drawing, right? That whereas Gravity is this beautiful piece of art that moves you mm. and and that kind of thing. You know, The Martian is this very kind of logical technical sketch, and um, you know, I almost wonder if the fact that uh, gravity takes place in low earth orbit with current technology that already uh. exists versus um you know the martian which is on mars which is a it's kind of a it's on people's you know minds right now there's a lot of buzz about private space and and um you know elon musk uh, mm -hmm. was recently um you know he announced his vision for for travel to mars so i wonder if it gets a little bit of a pass from taking place in this new spot that people are more enamored about. And also a little bit more in the future, 2030. Right, exactly. I don't think, I think uh, gravity is supposed to take basically right now. Exactly. So I, I wonder if, if some of that plays into it, um, you know, but I think both movies should be lauded for drawing attention to the, the sciences, um, to, you know, kind of the, the amazing things that, that can happen in space. And I think the amazing nature of human ingenuity, frankly. So and to, what people will do to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's, let's do our traditional rating system. We always want to make sure we, we do a rating from one to five, but the scale changes because we want to make sure we tailor this for the movie itself. So I think for this one, let's do one. Uh, how you would you rate the movie between one and five uh, poop potatoes? And not just a poop potato. Uh, but when you're really hungry, like you're starving, <laughs> you're on Mars, you're hungry, and you have, how would you rate this movie? One, um, one poop potato will still leave you pretty hungry. I, I'm, I'm pretty hungry. I could eat f uh, four of them. Um, I thought, uh, you know, great movie, um, you, you just well done, uh, a lot of good uh, good story, and just very entertaining. Um, could have done some of the things in the science better. You know, maybe the story could have been a little more character development, but mm -hmm. but I thought I thought it was very solid, so I'd say four. Four poop potatoes. I would say three, um, which I'm not going to say... For, for, for sci-fi movies like this, a three for me is very good. I'd watch this movie again. I've watched it a couple times now. I rewatched it recently on Sunday with my wife who hadn't seen it before. Uh, I'd watch it anytime I can get the opportunity to do so at work. Uh, no, I like this movie a lot. Maybe I'll go to 3.5 uh, Poop Potatoes. A little bit more on that one because um, I do enjoy Matt Damon's presence in this movie. He's great. He really is just what I would imagine uh, Mark Watney to be, that sense of humor. And after seeing the movie, I'm not so upset that it got the uh, it won the Golden Globe for Best Comedy. I get now they've changed the rules because it has to be can't be a drama with comedy elements. It has to be an actual comedy. But it was really funny. And a lot of that comes from how well Matt Damon played that role. So 3.5 Poop Potatoes, I would certainly give that. But if you want to learn more, uh, the listener here, uh, about these kind of issues, I have four things that I'd really recommend uh, you check out. And I'll, again, I'll put this in the show notes so you can uh, find exactly places to get this. First, there's this great book um, that I'm working on right now uh, by Timothy Jorgensen called Strange Glow, The Story of Radiation. He's a professor at my alma mater at Georgetown University. He studies and teaches on radiation medicine. It's a great history. Of, of radiation and why most people uh, in, the, in the public and even people that work in government don't understand radiation and kind of what the where the dangers are and where the benefits are. The second thing I have is a BBC documentary from 2003, which I think you can find a good chunk of it on YouTube. It's called To Mars by A-Bomb, The Secret History of Project Orion. You pair that with another book called Project Orion, The True Story of the Atomic Spaceship, by George Dyson in 2002, and you would get a great history of Project Orion and kind of where where it comes from and why they didn't continue it, and if they're maybe going to look at it uh, again in the future if, if, if manned spacecraft or large missions to Mars might be a thing, um, or some version of it. Probably not explode nuclear bombs to take off, but maybe some version of nuclear power in the future to power spacecraft. And finally, this is a book that I love. That's It's nonsense. It's just a futurist book about space uh, colonization, but it's called The Millennial Project, Colonizing the Galaxy in Eight Easy Steps. It's by Marshall Savage in 1992. Uh, this is one of my favorite books because it's just a really interesting discussion of the problems that you would need to do to not only get out to space, but to colonize it and, and spread the seeds of humanity around the universe. So it's an interesting big picture look at these issues, and I know uh, nuclear power and some of these things are get played into this particular story. So those are four things to check out. Uh, they're right around the holidays. Put it on your Amazon wish list, put it on your Christmas list, and you'll find it uh, maybe in your stocking. 
So, Gabe, thanks very much for coming down again. Uh, you're quite the all-star uh, here when we do with space stuff. So maybe we'll give you a little bit of a break and, and just go, go to some action movies instead. All right. Thanks, Tim. But thanks so much it. for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong today, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. We've got a Facebook page. We've got Twitter, at Nuclear Podcast. We've even got an email account set up for this, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed the program, really would appreciate it if you'd find it in your holiday uh, cheer to go on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show and leave a review uh, if, you, if, if you like the program. Uh, and we'll listen to kind of what you have in terms of your comments and try to make the show better uh, for each one that we do. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Thank you.